Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. While you lucky lot were recovering from your first week at work this weekend, Helen and I have been trying to get our heads around the situation in the Red Sea. And boy, it's complicated. The basic picture, though, is this. Since October the 7th and Israel's war against Hamas, the Iranian-backed Houthis, who now control most of Yemen, have been attacking container ships bound for Israel, and in doing so, ramping up the cost of shipping through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Now, this matters primarily because it means one thing, inflation. If container ships with goods from Asia can't go through the Suez Canal, or are too scared to do so, they have to travel all the way around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, adding something like 20 days and millions of pounds to their basic costs. And that means the price of everything goes up. Now, that's not good in a year where half the world is expected to go to the polls, including the EU, the US, and of course, the UK. Now, suffice to say, there's a hell of a lot going on here, which we're going to get into in this episode. History, economics, politics, geopolitics, classic these times turf. So it's a very quick overview of the big picture here. We've got this war in Yemen, which began in 2014 and has been in a kind of low-level ceasefire since 2022, between government forces backed by Saudi Arabia and the West on one side and the Houthis backed by Iran on the other. Now, this, of course, is part of this wider struggle going on for supremacy in the Middle East between Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey, the UAE and Qatar. And then on top of all of that, of course, you've got this global battle for supremacy between China, the manufacturing superpower of the world, who is shipping goods through this part of the world, and America, the maritime superpower responsible for keeping this and all the world shipping lanes open. The crucial thing to remember about this part of the world is that it is one of the choke points of the world shipping. And so you've got military bases galore here. In Djibouti alone, China, the US, France, Japan and Italy all have bases. On the other side of the water, in Oman, Britain has a base. And it's not just the frozen civil war in Yemen we have to think about when we think about this conflict, but the civil war in Sudan 
on the other side of the straits, drawing in Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, Somaliland, and the whole Arab League. This is crucial turf. So in the face of what, as you can hear from that, is quite a lot of complexity, we're going to ask this question this week. What is the history of these events in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal? And what do they tell us about where power lies in the geopolitical world today? Tensions in the Red Sea are escalating. Yemen's Houthi rebels say 10 of their fighters died in a skirmish with the U.S. Navy. The U.S. says it fired in self-defense. The U.S. military is here to win our country's wars and to win them decisively. We will always try to deter conflict but if we have to defend our country, we will fight and we will win. So, Helen, we're going to start with the history of this. I mean, we have talked on this podcast quite a lot already about the Suez Canal, but I think it's because it is so crucial to the understanding of post-war Britain, post-war Europe, and, and obviously what is going on today. Now, you're the expert on this, so I'm going to pass the baton over to you in a second. And one of the things that jumps out in my mind is this kind of, the, the fact that the names keep changing. So in the back of my head, I have this memory, I don't know where it's from, of the Aden colony and the Aden protectorate. And I know that Aden still exists, and but it's now called Yemen. Like, what, what is going on here? When did this all begin? So I think, Tom, we need here to talk both about the entrance to the Red Sea from the north from the Mediterranean yeah. and the exit point from into the Indian Ocean. So one's about Aden, yeah. as it then was in the 19th century, and one is about Egypt. Now, if we take the Aden story first, just because chronologically, in terms of the changes that happened in the region, the first significant change uh, happens here in 18. 18- 39, the British East India Company with the Royal Marines used force to take control of the port of mm-hmm. Aden. Now, this is important for the British perspective for two reasons. First of all, because it's on the trading route, the only sea trading route then between Europe and Asia, which went round the, the Cape of Good Hope. So the way that quite a lot of container ships are now going because of the events in the Suez Canal or on the entrance to the Suez Canal. And because the British wanted a coaling station Mm. for steamships on that route between Europe and Asia. Now, what the, under the control of the British East India Company did was to establish the port of Aden as a colony. Right. The Aden colony, that's what you're remembering there. Mm. So that was the only actual colony that Britain ever had in the, the Middle East. Otherwise it had protectorates. And one of those was actually the Aden Protectorate, sort of the hinterland behind the port of um, Aden. But that didn't come until later, until after the Suez Canal was mm. built. Now, the thing about the Suez Canal was it was it was built by the French and it was built in significant part as a challenge to British dominance of the trade route from Europe to Asia, because now you put a canal through from the Mediterranean into the the Red Sea, you could connect the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean. When was Ocean. it built then? So the, the Suez Canal Company to build, it was formed in 1858. 
the canal was built between 1859 and 1869. 10 years. When it opened. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. 10 years. I mean, I think how long it's taken us to build HS2 when they built a, a canal from... It should be said it wasn't the first time that there was a canal built there. We could perhaps, in fact, in another episode, we might say something um, about um, that because it was going to take us away from where we are now, though. It is a a quite interesting story in terms of the previous geopolitics of it. Now, Britain was actually, the British government under Lord Palmerston was bitterly opposed Mm. to the building of the canal by the French because... Palmerston saw it as a direct threat to British dominance of the trade route. The French wanted multinational investment, if you like, in the Suez Canal Company, but they weren't able to persuade anybody else to purchase shares, not least because the British government discouraged other states from purchasing shares. So it ended up with Egypt having 44% of the shares. I should say that at this point, Egypt is basically a vassal state within the Ottoman Empire. So the basic geopolitical picture is weakening Ottoman control um, of this area and growing European, but more particularly British and French Hmm. um, influence. And that is the context in which the canal um, was um, built. But it's pretty clear that within a few years that British shipping is actually dominating going through the canal. And a series of events in the 1870s, not least the financial troubles that Egypt got into, which has got, we might come to this later, some parallels with what's going on today, Hmm. led to Britain under Benjamin Disraeli purchasing shares in the canal from the Egyptian government. So the French actually still were majority control. So you then have conflict between Britain and France about the... Canal. You've also got growing nationalism in Egypt, a story that's going to reoccur later, which leads to the British bombarding Alexandria, occupying most of Egypt in 1882 and taking control of the canal. Taking control of the canal. Yeah, so this, so, uh, this so is this, the period of British domination. This is the, this is the period of, of British domination. But what's interesting then is, is that in that decade, so we're now into the 1880s, is that under significant pressure from the French, it must be said, is the British government agrees to something that's called the Convention of Constantinople. And it holds the principle of free maritime navigation Mm. for at least the the European powers Mm. through the canal. And that it's supposed to uphold this principle, not just in peacetime, but in wartime too. Now, the British also insist on a clause that says, actually, in any circumstances in which the security of Egypt is threatened, which really means obviously in practice the security of British interests in yeah. in Egypt, then discretion can be used as to whether the canal is open. But the idea at that point is, is in that sense that in this new commercial world that had been created by the latter part of the 19th century, that free maritime navigation was essential to that. It's surprising, actually, hearing that story, Helen, that Britain and France didn't come to sort of more conflict over this. The fact that, you know, the French built something and then effectively we took it over. But then I guess you could also think that it was perhaps this joint baby that kind of bound us together at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. So it perhaps played a crucial role in that. Yeah, I think if you if you look at what events that, that happened in 1881, 1882, is, is that the military action 
that leads in the end to Britain controlling Egypt actually begins as joint British-French oh, right. action. Okay, yeah. And obviously we're going to get to the Suez crisis in a minute. That has got a clear parallel with yeah. what's going to come in 1956. But the upshot of that period is, is that Britain ends up occupying most of um, Egypt. So, we, And this is where it get, it's, the, the situation's like getting complicated mm. because if we go down to the other end of the, the the Red Sea. We've also got kind of like now got a division between the British effectively controlling the southern part of what is today Yemen and the Ottomans still effectively controlling mm. like the northern part of it. So this is the point where what is really now predominantly British power is pushing itself against. Right. And so I suppose the, the big picture is we have this trade route to India, you know, the jewel in the crown that is protected through through the Suez Canal, down through the Red Sea, we're protecting all of that, and so you know we're in a we're in a pretty good position. And I guess it's the two world wars that then change things. So the first world war with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and in a sense the, the British and French power increases from that point, and then the second world war, which then ends British and French power in a way or signals the end of British and French. Well, power. I think that that we should come back to the Second World War in a moment. Because I actually think that the Second World War doesn't change things so much. It makes things very difficult in terms of all the years after the Second World War, make things very difficult in terms of Egyptian nationalism, as we're going to see. But I think it's important to see just how committed Britain is to trying to retain control, Hmm. not only of the the Suez Canal, but of Aden through the first part of the post-war Period. I think what we should say about the First World War, and we've already talked about this, actually, if you recall, when we were doing the episode on Britain and Israel, hmm. is that events around the Suez Canal do change for Britain dramatically in the course of the First World War. And that is the fact that the Germans and the Ottomans attack the canal from the, the Sinai Peninsula yep. really terrifies British government, because they've worked, as you suggested, Tom, on the assumption that if you control Egypt, you control the canal. Yeah. If you control the canal and the Red Sea, you control the route to India. And that's obviously hugely in, important. And indeed, we should say that actually Aden Colony at this point is being run out of India. It's not being run out of... Oh, right. Uh, but yeah. It's being run by the government of India. So once you have a situation where the canal can be attacked from the other side of the Red Sea... That looks like a big strategic blow. And then that's partly, I mean, I would say a significant part, a very significant part of why the British pursue the mandate in Palestine and commit to the the Balfour Declaration of having a, a friendly government on the eastern side of the Red Sea. I think what we can see even before the Second World War, so through the interwar years, is, is that the issue of Egyptian nationalism is really becoming a problem for the the British government. So in 1936, the British government gives Egypt formal independence. But just showing the importance of the canal, that agreement that's reached in 1936 says that the British can remain militarily, British troops Mm. can remain in the Suez Canal 
So until at least 1956. So, I mean, 1936, this deal that we strike actually becomes quite a big thing in British politics post-Second World War. You know, I was reading back through this period because of the Suez crisis and seeing how it was raised in Parliament as this sort of foundational document that we would then use to justify our our continuing presence in, in Egypt. And then it was coming under pressure from from the Egyptians, who are they now led by at this point? NASA. NASA. So NASA is then really challenging Britain's position in the Suez uh, Canal before the Suez crisis. And we are having to respond to this. I think this eventually becomes known as the sort of the Suez crisis before the Suez, uh, the actual Suez crisis that we're we're familiar with. Yeah. And so in 1951, Egypt repudiated under NASA the 1936 agreement. A new agreement was reached in 1954, which said that, that British troops were to be withdrawn by June 1956. And Egypt said it would take responsibility for upholding the principle of the freedom Mm. of navigation through the canal. But it was agreed that British troops would be allowed to return if the Suez Canal was threatened by an outside power. But what happened instead was just a month in July 19th, NASA nationalised the Anglo-French Suez Canal um, Company. And this is what led in time, not immediately, to the, the British-French military operation against Egypt that Eisenhower brought to an end by putting Britain under such financial pressure in 1956. And it came in conjunction with Israel invading Egypt because the same day in which NASA nationalised the um, canal, he, he closed off Israel's access to the Red Sea through the Strait of Tehran. So this is a moment in which we can see that the British and the French say, look, we absolutely think that our commercial, our, will, our economic interests yeah. are existentially at stake here. And the reason for that, and this is, I think, changes the situation from what it had been for Britain previously, is because now... The all the West European states, not just Britain and France, are dependent upon oil coming from the Persian Gulf up the Red Sea through the Suez yeah. Canal. Because at this point, India has gained independence, so it's not about protecting the trade route necessarily to India. It's not a it's not a a, a purely imperial project in that sense. It's about getting resources out of the Middle East, through the Suez Canal and into Europe. And, and Western Europe is dependent upon that. And that is the basis. It's absolutely of- dependent upon that. I mean, there are some pipelines that do that, but this, this, it's the central means by which the oil is coming out of the, the Persian Gulf into um, Europe. And at that point, then there are no alternative supplies for the West European countries. Yeah. There's no what- Soviet oil at that point, partly because the Americans don't want the want Europeans to buy it, but also because the Khrushchev's only really still in the beginning to resurrect the Soviet oil export capacity. But also the Americans don't want European countries buying oil from the Western Hemisphere, Yeah, not just from the United States, from the Western Hemisphere more generally, because they're worried about future American supply. So this is absolutely existential for the West European countries. And what you see through the Suez crisis, and it doesn't just end with the end of the military operation against Egypt, it goes on for a little bit longer after that, is that the canal is closed. Right. Now, we're obviously not in that position today. It's it's a question of of the the container ships in particular going around the, the Cape of Good Hope. But this was a moment where you could see what the stakes were for the European countries. And just in looking at this again, I found this 
great article from the New York Times mm. from December, 2nd of December, 1956. And the New York Times is describing to its American audience what is going on. So note that this is a month after the crisis has effectively ended in terms of the war having been brought to an end by Eisenhower. And the New York Times says... Dwindling gasoline supplies brought sharp cuts in motoring reductions in work weeks and the threat of layoffs in automobile factories. There was no heat in some buildings. Radiators were only tepid in others. Hotels closed off blocks of room to save fuel oil. The Netherlands, Switzerland and Belgium have banned Sunday driving. Britain, Denmark and France have imposed rationing. Nearly all British automobile manufacturers have reduced production and put their employees on a four-day instead of a five-day week. So this is a sense here in which you can see that what's going on in daily life is being really directly affected by what was going on in the in the canal. Now, in the end, I think it's in like some point in early 1957 that the NASA opens the canal Hmm. again. In terms of the canal itself, it remains open until 1967, till the Arab-Israeli War of 1967, and then it's closed for eight years. Yeah. So that is a really significant shift and a really significant blow to the world economy during that year. But as that drama is playing itself out, something else is going on, which is down in Aden, Mm. which is a British position in Aden is becoming harder and harder, at least from about from, from, from 1962 onwards. And it should be said that Aden, in terms of a British being a British strategic interest became even more important after the Suez crisis because clearly Britain couldn't continue using the Suez Canal Zone as its military base in the Middle East. Mm. And so it shifts to Aden. So the 1957 Defence White Paper, so written after the Suez crisis, declared, quote, that Britain must at all times be ready to defend Aden Colony and the protectorates and the territories on the Persian Gulf for whose defence she is um, Responsible. Yeah, I mean this this period, nineteen fifty six Suez Crisis to we're going to take this story forward to nineteen sixty seven, and the period when we withdraw from east of Suez. This is so fundamentally important to understanding post war Britain, as Suez is the moment that reveals, in a way, the extent of. Britain's decline as a as a world power able to operate independently of the United States because this is a military action that was launched be- between the Israelis, the French, and the British actually at Chequers. The French flew over to Chequers and th- they suggested this plan to Eden, who had taken over as Prime Minister from Churchill the, the year before, and and he agrees to it. And this is his fatal decision. Now, we can get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of this in another episode, but it's, 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 in many ways, it's a completely defensible position. And we've seen how strategically important the, the canal was. And I think it's Macmillan who takes over from Eden and says, it's, uh, they've got uh, their hands on our throat. You know, he, is the, he was a chancellor at that point. Uh, it's, it's absolutely crucial. And so we move to Aden. And then let's take us through to 67 when we pull out, because the Americans have effectively stopped our action, humiliated us and said, you know, they've threatened financial sanctions if we don't uh, stop the the, the military action. So we are forced to do so. Uh, I think Churchill says something to Eden about, you know, I wouldn't have dared to do it and I wouldn't have dared stop. And so the problem was he did, you know, he did both. And in, in so doing sort of revealed British weakness. But the Americans actually want us to carry on playing the role that we've played, which is to 
to be the military power in the Middle East. This is the kind of the weird irony that I find about this story, is that they stop us because it actually happens just before Eisenhower's election in November. So it's painted in the States as a, you know, just an imperial act by the British and the French. And that's, that's not something that's going to go down well in the presidential election. So they put a stop to it. But they want us to keep playing the same role. And it's not until 67 that we stop playing that role and that we have to pull out. Now, it's part of a wider story, this, you know, of we, we'd pulled out of Greece in 47, Indian independence, we then pulled out from Egypt in the 50s, and eventually we pull out from Aden in 67. It's effectively reflecting the fact that we're not as wealthy as we can't, we can't afford this stuff. And I think it's crucial, not just psychologically in the sort of the, the British elite's mindset, but to do with our relationship with Europe. Because in 67, you've got Harold Wilson pulling us out of our bases east of Suez, the devaluation of Sterling crisis, and the his beginning, his attempt to then join the EEC as it was then. And they are all, you can't understand any of them without the other. You know, this is a sense of, we no longer can play that role that we're familiar with. We have to find a new role, and that's Europe. But I think that What's really different about the Aden story in this is that we run out of Aden, and so that there's you know, the, the the general announcement which is made in January '68 after the events in Aden hmm. that Britain's going to withdraw from east of Suez, which horrifies the Americans, comes in response to the fact that essentially ran out of Aden in November of 1967 because it was no longer possible to defend what by this point we'd constructed into something called the Federation of South Arabia, which is really just another way of constructing the protectorate, the yeah. Aden protectorate and the Aden um, colony and kind of like trying to dignify it yeah. a bit more in the supposedly post-imperial world. But we don't want to leave Aden. Hmm. Is, is We've tried really hard yeah. to defend it against this nationalist movement that is trying to take over and succeeds in doing in November 1967. It's a straightforward like military defeat. It has yeah. enormous like financial consequences, including in relation to the devaluation of sterling, uh, as you've um, said. But the, the British political class, and I mean by that both parties, both, yeah. absolutely committed to saying that we have to, the British have to stay yeah. um, in um, Aden. And that is both in relation to the fact they no longer control the canal um, any longer from 1956 and in relation to maritime security between the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Wilson's absolutely committed yeah. to it, isn't it? Because he doesn't, he has rejected devaluation earlier because it it makes keeping Britain's global influence more expensive. Well, in particular, it makes difficulties, it makes difficulties in Kuwait because in terms of buying oil in sterling, yeah. which is which we were trying to do, it makes the defence of Aden like more difficult. So while we can say that Britain adjusts to nationalism in other parts of the world by saying, like, we have to plan to mm. hand over power like in India. There's no handover of power yeah. in Aden. It becomes um, the Republic of South Yemen because we're talking, I mean, the North is a, is a separate um, question. Um, at that point, uh, it was Soviet-backed. And so by the end of the 1960s, the situation is that Egypt effectively not only controls the canal, has closed the canal and a, a Soviet-backed regime is in power at the tip of the, the yeah. Red Sea. And yeah. then the interesting thing is that in the 70s, then the Americans don't in any sense 
replace Britain. They don't in relation to the Persian Gulf and they don't in relation to the Red Sea. So they, they don't come at 70. So you've got this strange picture where Britain was the military presence and America hasn't yet stepped in, but it does step in towards in the 80s and then principally in, in 1990. It's a Carter doctrine, right, that takes, us, takes America back Yeah, in. there is a paradox here. And I think we should finish this half on this note because I think it has some, it speaks to something that's going on now in the American position is on the one hand, by the end of the 1970s or by early 1980, you can say that the Americans under Jimmy Carter in response to the Iranian revolution mm. in 1979 and in response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan have deemed the Persian Gulf a vital American security interest. That's what the Carter Doctrine right. says, that the American military power will be brought to bear on any external threat to American interests in the Persian Gulf, which obviously mean oil interests, like, fundamentally. But if you then look, and I went back and, like, looked at US naval deployments through the entire post-war period, between 1945 and 1990, the only time in which there's a listing of a major American naval deployment is actually in June, like, 1948, when it's shared, it says Mediterranean stroke Persian um, Gulf. So it doesn't actually lead to a significant routine Mm -hmm. redeployment of American naval power. That only actually happens in 1990. And we know what the triggering event of that is the first Gulf War. But this is the point, I think, from henceforth, mm -hmm. where we can say that the American position in relation to the Middle East is changed and it's more committed to deployment of its naval power in this part of the world. And that's, in this sense, the world in which we are now in, because that's where I think the expectation has come right. that in the face of this present crisis in the Red Sea, that the Americans are the ones who are going to take responsibility for trying to keep the Red Sea open. Even though, if you look at it in terms of this whole post-war history that we've been talking about, that for a long period of time, even when it's the Americans who are we think of as the ones who are keeping the world's oceans open, that hasn't really applied in this part of the world. We should end the first half there then and turn to... The world that's changing now before our eyes in this exact same part of the world in the second half. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back. So in this half, we are going to turn, Helen, to events today or the world that exists today. We've given us, we've gone through the history. So we're into this world where America is responsible for uh, keeping the shipping lanes open. Britain has retreated. You know, the Soviet Union has collapsed. And in 1990, the Americans have gone in. So 
we've now this starts to change. I mean, I, I was thinking about this over the weekend and thinking the significant things that are changing are China's rise and the fact that you've now got uh, cargo ships coming from Asia through the Suez Canal to Europe and that developing relationship and how that is crucial to understanding China's rise as a, a manufacturing superpower, which is challenging the Americans. And it, actually, that begins towards the end of the 90s when they the, the moves towards joining the WTO begin and that ends up in, in 2001. And also America's growing energy independence. So you've got those two events happening. So America has still got this role then protecting the world's shipping lanes. But in a sense, I could see from a a Trumpian perspective how you could start to think, well, are we protecting the route that is allowing our principal strategic rival to get rich? Yeah, I think if we unpack what you just said there, Tom, there's several things, aren't there? The first is crucial, which is, as you said, that China is added to the picture. Yeah. So if you were talking about the world of the 80s and perhaps even the first part of the the 90s, and you say, why is access to the Red Sea and the Suez Canal so vital? Hmm. It's still really, I think, bound up with the export of energy, oil in particular, hmm. from the Middle East to European countries. Yeah. Once you get into the 2000s, and this continues to grow to this day, is we're talking, as you say, about the manufactured goods from China coming to Europe. Yeah. And even to a lesser extent, actually, to the east coast of North America. I mean, significantly less. So that changes Mm. really something that have been true going back all the way to the origins of the Suez Canal, which this is essentially a relationship centred in terms of interests for Europe. And now it's not. That in itself is just a a big change. Yeah, massive change. And that explains why you've now got a Chinese military base in in the area and and a a Japanese military base. I mean, that is a different world entirely to the one that we were talking about in the first half. But in a sense, you could say, well, they're just doing what we did. They're just doing exactly what the British did in the 19th century today. They're defending their trade routes. Yeah, but I think you could also say the Chinese are doing something that is a bit different, which is, is in terms of their relationship with Egypt itself. Because what you can also see, at least from, the, from 2008 onwards, is considerable um, Chinese interest in investment in Egypt. And from 2014, trying to help Egypt developed the Suez Canal Zone as an economic area. And you've got considerable investment by Chinese state and companies mm. in strategic Egyptian ports, including in the Suez Canal. So one of the Chinese state-owned companies has a 20% stake in the container terminal at the northern terminal of the, the Suez Canal. And that if we think about it, and we've talked about this before, I know in terms of China's Belt and Road ambitions, mm. that's obviously got a land element to it, but it's got a sea part to it. And I'd say that Suez Canal is pretty central to the way in which, under Xi Jinping in particular, but it does predate that the Chinese think about the Belt and Road. So we've now got not just Chinese commercial interests mm. at stake, but we've got the Chinese state using its power to try to shape the region, not just in a military sense, but in, in an economic sense, trying to bring Egypt 
closer to it. Egypt, as we know, having been at least, except for the period when the Muslim Brotherhood were, was in control, being close in security terms to the Americans. And, and I guess it still is. So we, we, we have strong relationships now with the regime in, in Cairo, as, as do the Americans. I mean, this is partly, I mean, obviously a very cynical relationship, but we we did not we did not put up much of a fight for the uh, Muslim Brotherhood when they were uh, overturned. And I think we still have this strong relationship. I mean, you, you could almost map, couldn't you, global power, almost in terms of like shares in this, around the Suez Canal. Just yeah. like you were saying, you've gone from Britain and France owning it to now the Chinese having a 20% stake in the company that you mentioned there. It's just an extraordinary story. What and what's that? What's that? One hundred and fifty years change. You know that is remarkable. And then this, the other thing that I mentioned was America becoming less dependent on the Middle East for its energy, but Europe still is. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, a story of the two thousand and ten. So this is a story of the U.S. shale oil boom and the significant reduction in American oil imports mm. that allowed for including fewer oil imports from the Middle East and. I don't think that that means that the Americans don't have interests at stake any longer in what happens in the Middle East in relation to oil, but perhaps it diminishes their stake. And it certainly, I think, led, particularly under the Obama administration, to the view that the United States could detach from the Middle East. We've talked about this before in terms of the pivot to Asia that uh, Obama embarked Upon. I think the other thing we have to bring back into the, the picture here, though, because it really matters in the 2010s, though it has a prehistory, is what's going on in, in Yemen itself. So Yemen had been two states until 1990, northern Yemen and southern Yemen, and it was then unified. The, the Houthis, who are Shiites, but they're a minority group within Shiites, mm. emerged in North Yemen in the 1990s. They were then strengthened after the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And you start seeing the the government in Yemen launching military attacks on the Houthis and winning some Saudi support. But in 2011, we get the Arab Spring, again, mm. something we've talked about before there's a more general uprising against the Yemeni government and then Yemen goes into civil war in 2014. Crucially, in 2015, a Saudi-led military coalition, which includes Egypt and the United Arab Emirates, intervenes to support the government. The, with Western support. With, with, crucially, with Western support to begin with. Yeah. I mean, this is the Obama administration and the British government under Cameron provide some logistical support for the Saudi operation um, in Yemen against the uh, against the uh, the Houthis. Um, what we then see, I think, is the fact that in the second half of the 2010s, and it, and it begins with the end of Obama's presidency and then moves through Trump's, is the question of what American policy is to towards the civil war in Yemen and how far they are willing to back the Saudis acting against the, the Houthis becomes contested. And contested here as well. And I think also it, the, the coalition starts to fracture, doesn't it, over time? So I think the UAE pulled out. The Saudis weren't making any making mm. much progress, you know, it's a kind of failed... It's a failed intervention because the 
Houthis now control was something like 60 or 70 percent of the population mm. of Yemen. So, I mean, that is a, that's a pretty big strategic defeat for Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE, and of course, the West. And it is remarkable in a way because the Houthis are Iranian backed, so they're getting weaponry from Iran. But if you think about how they how they're getting that and the kind of financial support that they're able to get from Iran, it, it is nothing like that the Saudis are able to uh, bring into this into this conflict. And yet they're still emerging victorious. And that gives you a sense, I think, that's a kind of uh, smaller picture of what we're now seeing, the kind of conundrum that the West faces in that these Houthis who now control the, the north of Yemen, including the coast, by the way, because often when I think about north Yemen, I think that means that they're not on the coast, but they are on the coast on the west-hand side of the Red Sea. And so they are able to then start launching these attacks on shipping with very little, for very little financial cost compared to what it costs us to then respond in kind to make, to stop it from happening. So it's incredibly effective warfare technique. And this starts after the October 7th attacks and, and Israel's war on Gaza. So you can see, again, this is part of a wider strategy from from Iran, uh, because they're not targeting Chinese or Russian ships going through here. They're targeting ships that are going to Israel, they say. But well, they're, they're not even necessarily just going to Israel. They're, they're, they're targeting ships from countries who are deemed to be supportive of right. Israel. And so that jacks up any insurance costs. So any ships who want to go through here that are British, American, Western, they either say, well, we can't go, we have to go around the Cape of Good Hope, or they say, well, the insurance cost is going to go through the roof. So either way, the cost of shipping through there goes up and therefore consumers in the West feel it in their pocket. It's an incredibly effective strategy. And then, and then it presents us with a, what do you do about this? I mean, we already had the war, the Saudi Arabian war that, that was unsuccessful. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we have to see in one respect is is that the strategic consequences for everybody else of Houthi control of part of the Red Sea and their ability to launch attacks with Iranian help really was beginning to have consequences long before the 7th mm. of October. If you go back to 2017, uh, a Houthi missile struck one of the Saudi oil refineries mm. on the Red Sea. They were also able to, you know, launch attacks on United Arab Emirates during the period before the seventh of October. Mm. And during that time is the position of the United States was really to kind of let that go. Yeah. So even Trump, who was much more willing to support the Saudi war in Yemen than Obama was wasn't really using American power to respond to those attacks. Indeed, when the Houthis attacked an even bigger Saudi oil processing facility on the Persian Gulf side of Saudi, not on the Red Sea side, not, not, nothing happened, right. much to the Saudis' anger. And so you can see, I think, that the question of like what to do about the Houthis has actually been a, a dilemma for American presidents for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. What's changed since the 7th of October is that it's got to the point where container ships in particular are very wary. What's changed since the 7th of October is that the overall stakes for Western countries are so much higher than they were before. Now it's not just a question of like, 
what position do we take in relation to the conflict in Yemen itself? How much do we back the, the Saudis? It's now our economic interests yeah. are directly affected by the fact that the Houthis have established themselves in the position in which they have with Iranian help on the Red Sea. I think that the fact that this has got this history is reflected in the really quite muddled, if you like, thinking that seems to be on display, particularly in Washington, about how to respond to what's going on. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, the Biden administration wants to be firm. You can see rhetoric being directed at the Houthis saying, warning them essentially not to go too far. But as yet, a very considerable reluctance to take that really very direct action against actual Houthi bases in Yemen itself, as opposed to being willing, obviously, to inter intercept missiles directed at shipping. Well, this is where we need to pull the camera right back and think about the bigger picture, because the United States has started this pivot to Asia or wanted to pivot to Asia and not to get bogged down in the Middle East because it wants to focus its attention on its chief strategic rival, China. And yet it's got these other theatres now that it, not through its own choice, is bogged down in. So it is arming Ukraine. It's Ukraine's principal supplier. It is also supplying Poland with a massive increase in its military spending. I think the Poles are now up at something like 4.5% of GDP, which is twice that of, of the UK. So they are becoming a sort of a real European military power, and they are getting their arms principally, I was told, from the United States and South Korea, from Europe. So it's supplying Poland, it's supplying Ukraine, keeping Ukraine alive effectively. It is under tremendous pressure from Republican think tanks to keep its focus almost entirely on China. And, and now it has this crisis in the Middle East protecting Israel. So it sent those two warships to, to protect Israel after October the 7th to effectively warn Hezbollah and Iran from doing anything there. And now it has the, this dilemma about what to do in, in Yemen. And that is now a dilemma as well for Europe, because if the United States is not going to uh, fulfill its role, that, you know, we are effectively our trade, where we get our goods from is dependent on the United States keeping this shipping lane open, then what are you, what is Europe going to do? And so you're starting to see what is actually quite a traditional form of American hegemony playing out here, in that they are I spoke to a friend of mine, very well plugged in, in in Washington, who was saying that Europe's dependency is not really the principal cause of concern in the United States. They are building the traditional kind of coalition to try and share the burden as much as they can. And you see that in what's it called Operation Prosperity, which is this group of American allies plus the United States coming together to say that they are going to protect the shipping lanes. And obviously Britain is uh, is a leading part of that. But interestingly enough, France has, has not signed up to that, which I think is an oddity uh, that perhaps we can just turn to it in a minute. But that is that is the situation there. But it's not clear exactly what the United States is, is saying it's going to do or, or how far it's willing to get uh, involved. And this does come down to sort of raw military industrial capacity, where is it going to send its weapons? You know, how much can it produce? You know, it's, it's only got a finite supply of, of resources. So where, so where are they going? And the more it's bogged down in Europe and, and in the Middle East, the weaker it is in its potential rivalry with, with China. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a, a fundamental issue about American power that arises in relation to the events in the different parts of the world, as you've just described, Tom, which can be simply reduced in a way to the question of like, where does it send its firepower? Yeah. Um, and you know, using very expensive missiles to destroy cheaply produced drone attacks yep. um, or cheaply produced drones in the Red Sea comes with an opportunity cost yep. um, elsewhere. And I think that this is where it does matter as to like, well, what is at stake mm. for the Americans in the Red Sea and the, the Suez Canal? Uh, it's not its shipping primarily. It's not goods direct moving towards the United States that are primarily at stake here. Now, there is one thing I think that complicates that, um, which is, well, two things perhaps that complicate that, that if you get into a situation where oil tankers are finding it much more difficult to go mm -hmm. through the the Suez Canal, then that will have an effect on overall oil prices and that will hit the Americans because they, they can't, and that hurts Biden politically in an election year. Yeah. You can't They can't detach from world oil prices or geopolitical events around oil prices. The second thing that complicates it is is that because there are water level difficulties in the Panama Canal at the moment, there has been, at least until recently, more shipping going from China to the American East Coast going through the Suez Canal right. than is yep. usually the case. Nonetheless, even if we put those caveats in, you can't say if you're the American president that this is of primary importance to the US in this big strategic mm. picture in the way in which it is for the European economies. So the logic of that then is the Europeans should be doing this themselves. Or doing a lot more. Yeah. At the very least. And this is the odyssey about France, though. Why is it opted out of this operation? Prosperity? But I think there's a difference perhaps here between it not standing up to the statement that the Biden administration issued the other day, which was a warning to the Houthis, and whether France is detaching itself from actual military operations. Yeah, that would be unlikely, I that, guess. Yeah, and I think that this go, goes back to the question which is there in the Suez Crisis back in like 1956, is though if you are the European power, mm. how far do you trust that the Americans are interested in your interests. Why would you think actually that they're willing to use American naval power in order to protect passage through the Red Sea? You can't look at any bit of this history and say that that is actually what's happened. This is the first time in one sense, it's like the apparent American commitment to keep the world shipping lanes open is being put to the test in this part of the world and the answer is well unless you say that they didn't they didn't do anything to well, you could say well they didn't do anything actually to, to stop the canal being closed in 1967 yeah. between 1967 and 74 there was no american um, military response to um to, yeah. to that there's a, there's a great uh, biography of uh, anthony eden i think it's by uh, thorpe uh, and uh uh, he has this Eden quote later in his life uh, where uh, Enoch Powell had said something to him when he was prime minister that you know, the ones you need to watch out for, prime minister, are the Americans. They're the big threat to us. And, and Eden says in later life, I didn't know what he was talking about. It is fascinating we're back here, but it, is, it presents a, it presents a, an opportunity, I think, and for, for, for Britain. And it's a really interesting moment, this, but for Britain and for European power. Britain actually, under Cameron, returned east of Suez. And that's something that sort of went under the radar, but it is very interesting that we returned 
permanent military bases east of Suez in the Middle East, in Bahrain, I think it is, and in Oman. And without them would be in a particular difficulty right now. The Cyprus is is a, effectively a giant airbase, but we use that for operations in Iraq, but I think it's too far away for this operation, as I understand it. And also these two aircraft carriers that we decided to build early on, or committed to under Cameron, I think they began much earlier. Now, for the British mindset, this is the current British government's mindset, they are saying, look, we had 10 years of idiotic foreign policy, where we spent a lot of money on nation building in, in, in Afghanistan that completely failed, austerity in defence, and believing that we could continue having influence through uh, development funding. Now, this is a completely different case. This is a direct threat to British people's financial health. They're going to feel it in their inflation, effectively. And so this is a different world. This is about intervening to stop a relatively small armed group who have taken uh, control of a part of Yemen from having completely disproportionate influence in the world over the whole of Western Europe. This alone, is this is a justification for direct military action. That is the mindset at the moment. So you can see that how Western Europe is going to be dragged into this. But you can also see, given the history of how you explained it there, Helen, about how difficult it, it has been for Saudi Arabia, you know, no sort of military slouches, you know, and there's not exactly that they're reticent to use their power, how difficult they've found it. So this isn't, again, this isn't going to be easy. I think it's very different to what happened with the you know, Somali pirates. This is a this is a really potentially tricky situation for us here. I think that it also really has echoes of the Suez crisis of '56 in a in a different way. In that, one of the things that really concerned Eisenhower back in 1956 was the big geopolitical picture in relation to the Soviet Union. Yeah, that was partly because the Soviets were intervening in Hungary at the time, but also the threats that Khrushchev made to use nuclear weapons in defence against Britain and France in defence of Egypt. So the mindset that Eisenhower brought to the crisis was this is one part of yeah. of global geopolitical competition and the centre of which is the US and the Soviet Union and the dangers of that in a nuclear age. And, um, and Britain and French interests economically were subordinated yeah. in Eisenhower's yeah. mind to that big geopolitical picture. And I think you can see the potential for something the same yeah. being played out now, which is for the Biden administration, or indeed perhaps even for any whatever the successor to the Biden administration turns out to be, is that the big geopolitical picture is China, and that includes Iran. And you can't think about the Houthis without thinking about Iran. So any military action against the Houthis is action indirectly against Iran and potentially with spillover consequences that get into more direct issues. And this is the, going on at the same time in which you've already got the conflict between Israel and Hezbollah moving into a more intense phase, it would seem, in, in the last few days mm -hmm. or so. So the idea, I think, that the European powers will be able to say, well, we need you to act on our behalf against the Houthis and take on Iran in doing so without the Americans say, but we're only thinking about that in the consequence of what an attack on Iran might mean for China. Mm, yeah. Then I just don't think that's. I just don't think that that's going to happen. In that sense, I think, regardless of like what military capability that the European powers can bring to the table, they are still going to be really constrained by whether the Biden administration is willing to allow um, a confrontation with 
Iran with all the spillover consequences yeah. that has for the, the China question. And if there's a lesson from Suez, it would be that ultimately the Europeans may have to be told to sort of back off if there's any kind of deal that the Americans need to strike with yeah. the Chinese or who, with whoever to deal with this situation. The European economic self-interest will be, will be a second order concern. Absolutely. Yeah. And so with that, Helen, I think we should bring that episode to uh, a close uh, on that cheery note. Uh, one thing to note, this was actually our 50th episode, which I, I can't quite believe. It's been a, a, a whirlwind. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've loved it. I feel like we've covered a hell of a lot we in have. those 50 episodes, <laughs> including our favourite books, which was great. So with that, I mean, I think if you can, if you haven't already, please do, you know, like and follow and and please do jump on and, and, and give us a, a rating. It really, it really helps. And I hope you'll stick around for the next 50 episodes and see you next week. And as ever, this podcast was produced by Ewan Daughtry. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.